Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise he who received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you were a hard man reaping where you have not sown, and gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed? So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming would have received back my own with interest. So... Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God give us an understanding of his word. Keep our Bibles open to Matthew 25 and look at this passage together. The story begins with three slaves who have been entrusted, or we could actually say they've been bankrolled with a large amount from their master's accounts with the instruction to go out and further his business interests. The amount that's given to each of these slaves is rather significant. If you had a New Living translation, it would say that they were given a bag of silver, and that's just an attempt to try to give some modern English reflection to what a talent was. A talent was between 60 and 80 pounds. Someone has estimated that in today's market, it would be a bag of silver. This could have actually been not silver. It could have been copper or it could have been gold. But most of the expositors of the Bible believe that it was actually silver. And that this talent of silver would be about $30,000. D.A. Carson actually in 1984 estimated that talent. Because, you know, the amount of money would change from its respective or its relative to wherever we are in time. And in that time, he estimated that it would have been about... $19,000, but then he further estimated the earning power at the time of Judea that that amount of money would provide an individual and suggested that it would take a day laborer 20 years to earn one talent of silver. So let's go to our time and factor that in and just take a low income earner at let's say $30,000 a year and we would say that over 20 years they might earn $600,000 and That's about what's given to them. 
Something like that. However you figure it out, whatever you're figuring it is, it was a significant amount of capital that was given to these individuals to capitalize or to start up a business or to infuse into a business. And one slave receives one talent. Another slave receives two talents. One receives five. The master gave them a great amount with which to carry out his business. Now this parable comes after two other parables that we've read. And we read them during our scripture reading. The first parable is in Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. And that parable, it's a parable of slaves who have been given oversight of the master's household. And their job is to make sure that they provide food for all the other members of the household and care for them. And yet the certain slave, an evil slave, turns away and abuses the servants instead of tenderly caring for them. And in this passage, the emphasis is that Jesus is indicating that his people are to tenderly care for one another out of love for the master in light of his coming or during the time of his delay. The second parable is a parable of the bridesmaids. And there we're reminded that the heart focus of the individual is to be on the bridegroom. Where in the first parable, the Lord Jesus is saying that we should care for one another. In the second parable, the Lord Jesus is telling us that we should care for him. And our eyes and our focus should be upon him and our longing should be upon him. In this third parable, the parable of the talents, he's calling his disciples to faithfully conduct his business in the world. So briefly, what is the Lord's business? Well, it's broadcasting the gospel. It's bringing the message of salvation to souls. It's seeing those who respond to that message of salvation flourish in the gospel. The Lord Jesus said of himself that he'd come to seek and to save those who were lost. That was his business. He also says, I've come that they may have a life and have it to the full. Having received him and found him and gained his own, he wants them to flourish in his life and the expressions of his own life surging through them. And so we're to seek to advance this cause. More and more people to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. More and more people to be brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. More and more people to be encouraged and discipled and growing in that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the enterprise of the Christian. This is to be the enterprise of the church to contribute to the expanding of this business, this cause. So in this first parable, we have dressed our part before the master's community. In the second parable, we have addressed our part in our communion with the master himself. And in this third parable, we have addressed our duty to the master's enterprises, to tending to his business. And that's what's being put before us. A couple other things about these three parables. We see that each of them is being directed at how we should live while the master is away, during the time of his delay. And it would indicate that the Lord Jesus is letting his disciples know and understand that there's going to be a gap of time between his departure and his coming again. And each of these parables also lets us know that when Christ returns, that the day of his return will reveal the truth of their professions. Our professions will be proved by our love and service to his community. Our professions will be proved by our love and communion with himself. Our professions will be proved by our faithfulness to put forward and give ourselves and engage in his work and in his enterprises. We have to ask ourselves the question, do we love his church and do we care for it? Do we love him and long and look for him? Do we love him and are we committed to his work and his labor and the call he's placed upon our life? The answer to those questions will reveal whether we were truly his disciples in heart and soul or whether we were just 
paying lip service or whether we had just slipped into some social convention in our lives. Whether it's true, whether we were really committed to Him or whether we were playing a game. The difference will be, as the Lord Jesus tells us here, the difference between heaven and hell, between endless joy and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what I'd say is we're not saved by doing these things. I'm not saved by tending to the people in this church. I'm not saved by constantly and always thinking of the Lord Jesus' return. I'm not saved by being energetically given to the work and labor of Christian ministry, but These things are an expression. I'm saved to these things, not by these things. The Lord Jesus saves us and delivers us. The grace that he pours out upon us, the mercy that he pours out upon us, captivates our hearts, captivates our lives, draws us into his calling, draws us into his enterprises, draws us into his body. You know, you're born into a family. Did you know that? Born into the family of God, born to love what he loves. Born with a spirit that pours out upon you a love for God and a love for his people and a love for those who don't know him. And all these things are reflected in how you live. So now we're at this third parable and we're going to look at it today. And there are a lot of details in this parable that we're not going to try to sort out and figure out. Much of the great truths that God has for us are oftentimes lost to our appreciation because we become distracted by all the finer points of detail and miss the greater message. And so here in this passage, we're not going to try to figure out what the fine details of the story mean, but we're going to try to settle upon some things that we can, I think, agree together are being indicated here. And so here's the first one in this parable of the talents. The first one here is that The individual's self-identity in this story is being emphasized. The individual's self-identity in this story is being emphasized. As we mentioned last week, there are other parables that parallel some of these parables we're reading here, but they're parables that are somewhat hard for us to identify. A principle is laid down, but it's hard for us to identify ourselves in the parable. In other words, the parable of the various soils that received the seed, and some of the soil was rocky soil, and so the seed grew up, but then it burned away, and some of it was thorny ground, and so the the seed grew up, but it was choked off by the cares of this world, and then some fell in good soil, and it produced fruit, and we read that and recognize that the Lord Jesus is telling us that there's not always the same response to the places where the gospel, and the individual lives where the gospel comes, but most of us have a hard time identifying with soils. The very next parable that Jesus told was the parable of the wheat and the tares. And it's also a parable indicating the principle that there is a mixed multitude in the kingdom of God. Those who are true professors of faith who bring forth the fruit and the wheat on their stalks. And those who are only appearing to be weak, but they're weeds instead. But it's kind of hard for you and I to relate to wheat and weeds. And he goes on from there to tell the parable of a net full of good fish and bad fish and Well, you have to decide whether you're a good fish or a bad fish. And he tells the parable at other times of the sheep and the goats that are before him at the judgment seat, and they're divided. And again, it's kind of hard for us to relate to whether you're a sheep or a goat just in life. But here's a parable I think that we can all relate to. We can all individually identify. All of us can identify individuals who have varying abilities and varying resources. I think God has made us and created us with an acquisitive nature, a desire to attain things and accomplish things and realize things in our lives. And as we go out and pursue those things, all of us have thought, if I only had the resources that that person had, 
If I only was born with the advantages that person, some people are born with a silver spoon in their mouths. Some people are born in a well-connected family and they find themselves rising to some level of success because of their connections. And well, you realize, I don't have the connections that person has. And if I only had those connections, if I only had those resources that he had, I, I could have done more with my life. And, and then what happens to us is as we get a little wiser in life, we find out that it wasn't our lack of resources that limited us, at least that's not the whole of the story. The reality was we discovered that it wasn't that we just lacked the resources, we lacked the ability to handle those resources. It's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing to figure out that the reason that you didn't accomplish certain things in your life was not because you lacked the right opportunities and the right resources and the right connections, but that even if you were given the right opportunities and the right connections and the right resources, that you weren't given the brains <laughs> to manage it all. You just didn't have the temperament to do it right. You, you didn't have the patience that would lead you into success in using all of those things. And I've learned to pray a prayer before the Lord oftentimes when I'm facing decisions, just decisions about choices I have to make for the wherewithal and the necessities of my home and how to plan out my future. And my prayer usually starts, Lord, you know how stupid I am. If you don't show me, if you don't help me, well, whatever you think were your lack of advantages in terms of resources and provision and whatever you might come to realize were your lack of advantages in terms of your abilities, there are those who had more of it, both resources and abilities, but there are also those who had less of it, less resources, less abilities. It's kind of the way that we see our lives. And this analogy in the story basically helps us kind of identify something I think all of us have felt at times. We can identify with that. He got five talents. I only got one, right? They have more abilities. I have less. Or I've got two talents. At least, at least I've got a little bit more than this person has or whatever it is. And don't be confused by the amounts that are being discussed here, by the way. It could have just been easily told that the one with one talent gained one talent more and the one with five talents buried it. Right? The story is really not to be about who has more and who has less. It's about what you do with what God gives you what you do within how you use the resources that God brings in your life. And one of the things you need to recognize here is that God has adequately supplied all of us with tremendous resources. He's adequately given us a measure of his truth and spiritual gifting and knowledge of his word and an outpouring provision of his spirit. He's placed all these things at our disposal. He's adequately given you unique personalities and traits to fulfill and invest in his business as he desires. And the real question before us is whether we're going to be faithful and what he's given to us. And we see here how God ultimately works with all of us. He gives a significant amount of gifts and resources from himself to all of his servants, but he does give less to some than others based upon their own physical and mental and temperamental abilities. But again, we'll be judged according to our faithfulness, to what was wisely given to us, not according to how much or how little we had to work with as compared to someone else. Can you relate to that? You see when a person's reading this passage and they're looking at the passage and they actually consider it, it dawns on them, oh, this is talking about me. I fit in this category. Very easily I fit in this category. We all, we all do. Let's look at another point here. The second point here is that we see in this passage a proper attitude of industry is love and appreciation for the master. 
A proper attitude for industry is love and appreciation for the master. The amount gained by the first and second slave is not the issue that we're to focus upon. It's not whether he gained five or whether one person gained two. And it's not even the speed with which they both took up to take advantage of this bankroll from their master and put themselves into his business. We're told that there was a long delay before the master returned to settle the accounts. And this should tell us that God gives us a long time to prove our faithfulness to him and a long time to correct ourselves if for some reason we get off to a slow start. Starting fast doesn't count unless you finish. Starting slow can be corrected if you'll turn back and confess and engage yourself in his work. The delay offers grace to change our course. The delay also gives a test to see if we're going to stick to the business that we've been sent out to until the end, until he returns. So what seems to be the important thing here is to be faithful and to continue in what it is that the Lord has called us to and to continue to fulfill our duties in the industry of our master until the time in which he comes. And the one thing that sustains us in all of that is a love for the master and awareness of the grace that the master has bestowed upon us. And letting us participate in this work. And so when these two individuals return with what it is that they have received and what they've gained as a result of the talent or riches that God has put upon them, their master has given them, they speak to the master with joy. They say, Lord, you gave me five talents. Lord, you gave me two talents. Do you see the emphasis? It's on what God had provided and what God had delivered to them. And then when they report on what has been acquired since then, they do not actually say, I gained five more. That's how we have it in our translations because we don't know how to translate it. The word I there is an inference in the Greek. Actually, what it says is something like this. Here's five more. It's like they're in wonder that God had given them this great resource. And then they're further in a sense of awe and wonder that something has multiplied from it. They're not taking credit for it. They're not pounding their chest and saying, I've gained five more. I've done more work for you. There's an expression of wonder and awe at what God has produced from their life that God had somehow tended over the business they were carrying on for him and that God was blessing it and God was guarding it and God was keeping it and God was bringing forth the increase and Paul says that I planted and Apollos watered and what God gave the increase that's the attitude they have here that's the sense of wonder that they're expressing And by the way, that kind of attitude is an expression of love for the master and a sense of awe and wonder at what the master has given them. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. We have Paul speaking to Timothy, and he's encouraging Timothy to continue to carry out the ministry that has been given to him by God to fulfill, you might say, to in fact, in verse 14, he says this, that good thing which was trusted to you or endowed to you keep by the holy spirit which dwells in you keep on keep pressing on keep administering keep putting forward what has been endowed to you it's really a picture of this parable there's been something that's been given to you a talents that have been put out to you rich talents that have been given to you by the lord continue in the tending to the business that god has called you to and his spirit will lead you in the flourishing in those things I'll go back to verse 8. 
verse 8, Paul basically gives a bit of a survey of his own life. He says here, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Paul is writing in prison at this time. This is the last letter that Paul will write before his execution. But share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here, Paul is basically saying the assignment that we received is a gift from God. It's a gift to set forward to the world the salvation God planned in Jesus Christ before time began and has become realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say this, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I suffered these things. Paul says, I've been attending to the business. I've been investing that which God has allotted to me, and it's not been easy. It's been difficult, and it's been hard, and it's caused a great exertion on my part, and a great effort on my part, and brought me to this place of imprisonment. But nevertheless, he says, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now take your eyes and rest upon that phrase, what I have committed to him until that day. What I've committed to him. In English, we read that and we read that as a verb, but it's actually not a verb, it's a noun. It's peritheke. And it means a deposit, something entrusted. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. And one of them was just in the passage that we read in verse 14. That what was entrusted or endowed to Timothy. He is to keep and guard and administer by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this same passage, the Lord Jesus says, what has been entrusted, what has been deposited, the deposit of me, he says, my deposit. God is able to keep my deposit, he says, until that day. That's what Paul's saying here. And in light of what we've just read in verse 14, And in light of what Paul tells us about what God has entrusted him just prior to this verse, it would seem best to understand that what Paul is referring to here is what God has endowed or entrusted to him. It's not what Paul has entrusted to God. It's not the deposit Paul gave to God. It's the deposit or what God has entrusted to Paul. The ministry he's given him and the riches and the endowment that's been given to him that he's to carry out in serving the Lord Jesus. What God had deposited to Paul as a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, God is able to keep and guard and preserve what he has entrusted to me. I may suffer imprisonment in the pursuit of my Lord's business. I may be put to death for proclaiming this gospel. But the talent God has placed in my hand for his service, I am confident God will keep. Lord, here's five more. You gave me five, here's five more. That's basically what he's saying. Paul is telling Timothy to continue to exercise the gifts laid upon him for the service of the Lord. He's saying, it won't be lost what you do for the Savior. It won't be squandered. So take the risk of entrepreneurial enterprise and press into the kingdom and into the business of your king. And he'll see that a benefit is drawn from your labors that will bring glory and honor to him. And all this, we have to see that's what motivates these servants, these slaves 
to tend to the business of their king is a great love for the master and a great amazement at what the master has entrusted to them, the resources of his own salvation that he's given to them to proclaim and offer to others. How wonderful is that? What motivation is that? Here's the third thing we can see here in this book. There is reward for such faithful engagement in the Lord's business. There is reward to be received from such faithful engagement in the Lord's business. These servants have joy in presenting what God has done through them. They have joy in delivering up this miraculous multiplication of what God had deposited in their own lives. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul speaks to the Thessalonians. These are those that he had led to Christ and that he had shepherded and that he had guided in their journey into faith. The very first letter probably that Paul ever wrote to those that he reached out in mission work was the Thessalonians. And so it would be First and Second Thessalonians. And Paul writes to them and tells them, For what is our joy or joy or the crown of our rejoicing? Is it not you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are glory and our joy. He's saying, listen, it's you who have responded to this message that we've had the honor and privilege to bring to you through this, our labors and our work because God has given us this wonderful message and we've become debtors to you because of this. And your response to Christ and your faithfulness to him is our source of great joy in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes. That in itself is enough reward. Just the joy of coming before our Savior and Lord and saying, Lord, you gave me one talent, but look, there's been more that's been gained. A little boy spends his day crafting on some little picture that he's drawing of his home and of his parents and of himself, and he, he's working on it and he's investing his time and energy into it because he's trying to give an expression of the bright sun that's shining over his house and of the love and appreciation and honor that he has for mommy and daddy. And then he goes and he takes that picture to his parents and just the presenting of the picture is a reward. It's a source of joy. There's satisfaction in it. Just that. But there's more here. There's more than just the satisfaction and the joy of presenting this to the Lord. There is a promised reaction from the master himself. He says, well done. The word here could be excellent, excellent. And here the comment is not upon the individual, but upon the labor. What a good job you've done. And little boy brings the picture to his daddy and his daddy says, fathers, listen to me. What a good job. What a nice picture you've drawn. Oh, I see all the effort you put into it. And the little boy's chest swells with pride at the appreciation the father or the mother are giving to his stick figure people with their balloon heads and wobbly eyes, you know. And his little heart swells with joy. God is watching over our labors for him. He wants us to give our hearts and our souls to his enterprises. And he is preparing an excellent for his sons and daughters. And this praise will bring delight to us throughout all eternity. What a good job. But there's more than this. Not only does he praise the work, 
Then he praises the worker. Thou good and faithful servant. Thou good and faithful servant. Now his praise turns to the individual, and this is even better. Here, there should be a sense of delight to know, and this should be the great desire of our lives, that we might be the recipients of his praises upon us. We hear the sound of our voices at times praising Him. Faintly at times we might feel the blessing and the sound of His praise over us. But one day heaven will open up and we'll not just be before our throne praising Him. But our ears are going to be opened up to hear His praise upon us. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes through the Holy Spirit, In chapter 3 of the great trial by fire that will come to all the believers in which our works will be tried and everything that is wood, hay, and stubble will be burned away and everything that's gold, silver, and precious stone will remain. And then Paul presses on and he writes about a day when the Lord Jesus will return and he says in verse 5 of chapter 4, He will bring to light all the things hidden in darkness. All the hidden things that we've done to serve Him. All the unnoted things of our prayers and our service of Him. Everything else is burned, burned away. What remains now is all that was gold and silver and precious stone that maybe no one else saw and we thought was completely unrecognized and unappreciated and he will bring to light all the things hidden in darkness and then it says each man will receive his praise of God. What a day is that? Just this alone should cause us to anticipate this moment. This moment which the joy of bringing to Him what we've done. The joy of His praise upon our labor and our work. And then His praise upon us. Ring out through all eternity. What an exciting thing. Again, I can't help but think of the moments in which, as a little boy, I heard the praise of my father and mother upon me. Oh, how talented he is. We ought to put this boy in art class. You know, he's got such a gift. Look at the... Look at that expression on that face, Mom. Look at that smile. It's how wonderful. Stop right there and it's enough. Heaven's enough for us with just that. Just that is enough. But there's more. He says, you were faithful in a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. Heaven's not a place in which we disengage from the service of our king. It will be a place of empowerment to pursue greater dominions and domains of service and worship. We're to rule and reign with Him. And the one who loves the Lord Jesus finds this promise compelling because they delight in serving Him. And the delight is to think they can serve Him more and more. We'll spend eternity discovering the expressions and expansion of our service to Him, our delight in Him. But there's more. Jesus will then say, Enter into the fullness of my joy. Come inhabit with me the fullness of my joy. Everything that God has done in planning our salvation, all the agonies that the Lord Jesus experienced on the cross, the unimaginable agonies that he experienced on the cross for us was done in order that he might acquire the unimaginable joy of saving us to himself. He delights in it. And we... Now in this life, experience drops of heavenly joy dropped into our lives, but one day we shall sail on the sea of Christ's infinite happiness. His joy. A full, unsullied experience of all that He wanted to save us to and all that He stored up to give us. 
as co-heirs with Him. Enter into the fullness of my joy. What a great privilege, what a great honor. We have two sermons here. I would like to end on that point, but let me just point out to you very quickly the fourth thing here. The unfaithful slave has no love for his master and no delight in his enterprise. He buries what's been given to him and contents himself that he at least is not abusing it. But what he doesn't understand is that what God gives us is to use for his service. And if you don't use it, you lose it. Life is like that, isn't it? Any talent you have, any ability you have, you don't hone it, you don't use it, you neglect it, you forsake it, you lose it. Well, God's economy is the same way. In this case, the slave has no love for his master. He sees his master as a hard and demanding person who will take whatever he wants without putting any labor himself. He'll make me do all the work and make all the sacrifices and he'll take all the gains because he harvests where he doesn't even plant his own seed. That's what he's saying. That's his excuse. And actually he accuses in a backhanded way his master of being unfair and unjust and profiting from his labors. And so he says, take back what's yours. If you've claimed the name of Christian, but done nothing with what Christ has given you in riches and in advantages, you're running out of excuses for not tending to his business. And not tending to his business begins to reveal that an attitude is settling in your spirit. Something like this. God can get done what he wants with or without me. Let him do it without me. What right does he have to ask me to risk my life in his service and his enterprises? I have my own business to attend to. God can get on all this without me, and so let him. I won't be responsible for losing anything that's his, but I also won't be counted upon to gain anything for him. It's not the attitude of those who love him, is it? It's not the attitude of those who truly know him, is it? It's not the attitude of the individual who's seen themselves as the recipient of his outpoured riches, is it? They only see God as a hard individual demanding from them all that they could provide in some austere way. They're looking at God through the smoky glass of their own self-interest and their own laziness and their own rebellion. And sadly, the reality is this is all finally they will know of God because God will accept their assessment of Him and send them out from Him forever. The day will prove what servant, what slaves we are, whether we loved Him, whether we appreciated all He gave us, whether He cared for His community, whether we sought our communion with Him, whether we were committed to His enterprises and tended to His business. I had some time ago, this is not the first time this happened, this happened multiple times, a rebellious individual meeting with me in my office, in the pastor's study. I reminded them of the debt that comes upon those who receive Christ's salvation. Maybe I reminded them of Paul's statement that I'm a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians and to the wise and the unwise because he knew the power of the gospel to save to the uttermost. I extolled and kind of pressed upon them and exhorted them to yield to that power and yield to that grace and surrender to that grateful debt that had been put upon them when Christ died for their sins and surrendered their lives to Him. But the sullen response that I received was, I never asked Him to die for me. 
What enslaves a Christian? What ingratiates the Christian? What indebts the Christian to the service of our master is the mercy and grace of our Savior dying for us to set us free from our sins. It's the undeserving receiving of that mercy and grace that makes us debtors to Him and to all. It claims us and it conquers us. We're slaves of Christ, bound with the chains, not of coercion and power, but bound with the chains of eternal, infinite, undeserved love and grace. We're conquered by that amazing love. It proves itself in our lives by our readiness to risk all to tend to His business. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Whether, oh God, a delay has taken place, a turning of attention from the things that you tug at our hearts to do for you, to do the things that tug at our desires and appeal to our eyes, whether a delay has taken place or not. Here now, O oh God, bring all of us present under the overwhelming indebtedness of the cross, the outpoured love of our Savior. We turn our eyes upon you, Lord Jesus. We know you in your victory and your resurrection. Let us see you in your suffering for us, for our sins. A crown plaited for you, a crown of rejoicing you're wanting to give us. Oh, indebt us to you, dear Savior, with a debt that we don't ever want to finish repaying. A debt so deep, so profound, so instilling love within us that we want to pay it for, to you forever, serving you and glorifying you and proclaiming you. Forgive us for slow starts. And forgive us for thinking we'd put in our dues and it was time to retire. You are worthy. You are worthy of the reward for which you suffered. You're worthy of that for which you died, dear Lamb of God. May our goal be to gain as rich a crown and as rich a reward, to multiply what you've given to us by your grace and power that one day we might lay it all at your feet and say, Lord, you, you have done it all. You have done it all. We'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.